You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 45, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Ryan Newhoffel. He's a pioneer of sorts, uh, not the type of little house in the prairie, although he is living out in the prairie in Lawrence, Kansas, college town. Uh, Dr. Newhoffel was one of the first people to start a direct primary care practice. Uh, we're not going to be talking about his practice and sort of how he got started back in 2011, which was a trailblazing adventure at that time. He's a prominent speaker in a lot of direct primary care conferences. He helps all sorts of direct primary care physicians get going. But today we're going to begin our discussion with his paper that he wrote about a year ago, but just came across my radar, uh, where he talks about quality metrics and measures that are used by insurance companies by uh, the CMS, the government, Medicaid, Medicare services, uh, and ways of trying to establish quality measures and de- determine sort of who's a good doctor and who's not, and to add value into the payment process, which lends the question, how do you compensate people and try and differentiate them and pay, pay them differently? Uh, the way the payment system has generally worked in this country is that it's all obviously through a third-party payer system almost entirely, uh, which case that means you get paid based on somewhat arbitrary level distinctions on what you do or sort of as far as either a cognitive visit where you go and have symptoms and have to get diagnosed or a procedurally. Uh, the procedurally is pretty much established and pretty easy for regulators or I guess you say insurance companies, the payers to figure out how to pay. The structure for cognitive decisions is very difficult because of course some people are better than others, some people are faster than others, some people have a better human touch. And so how do you differentiate that and pay people differently? And so that's the question. Payers are trying to figure out how to incentivize or disincentivize the behavior or process that you want. And so the discussion is what works better, characteristics, or do neither of them work? And so we'll talk about that. Of course, if you're not a subscriber to the show, I'd recommend that you subscribe. It costs absolutely nothing. Make sure you go to iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast player is and press subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single exciting episode of The Paradox. Continue sharing with your friends and colleagues. If you want to go to the show notes page and find out more information about what we talked about or some of the books that were referenced, go to theparadox.com, that's spelled the same way as the show, slash 045. There you'll find the links to the books and the article that we discussed about Dr. Newhoffel, as well as links to his organization, Direct Primary Care Alliance, and his practice website, which is New Care. Without further ado, Dr. Ryan Newhoffel of New Care. Enjoy. Welcome, folks. This is Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here with Dr. Newhoffel, who's a board-certified family physician, born and raised and mostly educated in the state of Kansas. He received a BS in biology from Friends University and a master's of public health from the University of Kansas prior to medical school at Kansas City University. 
He completed his family medicine residency training at KU, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, Med, where he served as chief resident. Shortly after finishing training, he found, founded New Care, NEU Care, a, in 2011. He now lives in Lawrence with his wife, children, and dog. And when he's not cleaning up after children or dog, he enjoys cooking, fine ales, and the great outdoors. And we're going to be talking today about an article that he wrote. Uh, I guess it was over a year ago now, but I just came across my radar in Kevin MD. So first of all, Dr. Newhoffel, Newhoffel, excuse me, welcome. And this is why this is why most of my patients call me Dr. New, yeah. uh, <laughs> because my, my last name, although it seems phonetic, uh, people often stumble over it. So uh, my grandparents uh, always went my grandma and grandpa knew. So I figured that was good enough for me as well. <laughs> well, uh, I think what we'll do first is just talk about a little bit how your practice is. Now, you you were practicing the direct primary care model, which I know my listeners have probably a lot of experience in me talking about this. Uh, you started in 2011, which you were really one of the new innovators. And actually, I feel like I recall you having some videos or something about that when you first started. Um, mm -hmm. We're talking about it. And it's just kind of ni nice that now it's really starting to pick up and pick up steam. But why yeah, you basically... I'm, a, I'm, what, I'm what you would call a grizzled vet in the DPC world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I started my practice um, in 2011, shortly after graduating residency. So I've I've kind of been on this path for a good number of years, and it's it's been really amazing to to see the movement grow in those early days. You know, when there was a handful of us, uh, quite literally, uh, back then, to to you know the over a thousand physician movement it is now. And and um, you know, I, I always knew that this idea made sense, but it was it was always hard for me to um, envision how big it could possibly be. But it's it's you know starting to really uh, um, you know move mountains in some respects and other respects. I think we should be further along. So, but it's it's been awesome to. To kind of see more and more physicians discover this and, and take it seriously. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I think what I'd yeah. like to start with is your article. So you wrote yeah. an article about quality quality measures, uh, value-based purchasing. These are all sort of acronyms that physicians are aware of. For physicians, and I always tell my guests about half my listeners in my unofficial demographics are non-physicians. And so the point mm -hmm. of the show is to better explain for physicians, what they're dealing with, why they're having problems with, say, medication shortage or uh, electronic health records, but then also to explain to patients, you know, why we're not able to deliver the care we want, why we're not able to deliver the care they want, and the barriers and solutions that we've found. And so uh, when it comes to val value-based purchasing, why don't you go into sort of what the broad concept is and with quality metrics, and then why is it, what are the problems with it, I guess? Yeah, I mean, um, if you really, um, you know, step back and look at a lot of what is being promoted to improve healthcare in America, I mean, it, it, it takes many forms, but one of the larger kind of concepts that's been pushed for the last decade or longer uh, has been the notion that, um, you know, we, we see um, doctors, uh, other medical providers um, provide poor medical care. I mean, we all recognize this, um, you know, as soon as we're competent to kind of recognize it, and this is uh, not, not unknown. Um, and, and we know this happens in the United States. I mean, if you look at um, people practicing um, in a way that's science-based, um, um, that's in line with standards of care, um, that we, we often see doctors who don't do that, you know, whether it's prescribing antibiotics when they're not necessary or ordering right. too many tests, um, you know, missing diagnosis. I mean, every, every physician who's, you know, has a conscious recognizes this. And so um, I, I think where this comes from, um, this push for, uh, doctors to do better comes from a rational place because we do have a really terrible system in a lot of ways. It, it in some respects, overtreats people and other respects, undertreats them. And so um, I think we all recognize that. But the, the question is, how do we promote better quality of care? 
Um, and for the past decade or two, um, most of the larger institutions, the government, um, you know, insurance companies, um, most policy wonks, um, at least 95% of them believe that we need to somehow incentivize doctors to do better. Um, and so on the surface, that seems, you know, like it would be rational, like, hey, well, we'll just figure out what is good care and we'll pay the doctors right. to do better. Um, so that's kind of where this, this context comes in. And, 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 and um, you know, there's many examples of this. Um, most of these kind of schemes um, are called pay for performance or quality improvements. Um, and so, that, you know, there's been many rounds of this, many decades of, of uh, government agencies and insurance companies trying to incentivize financially, uh, particularly, um, or penalize doctors for um, you know, doing the wrong or right thing. Right. So my wife's a pediatrician in, in a traditional practice, I guess it's a private practice. And I guess a good example of this for people who might be listening is, for instance, uh, the insurance company says, we want to have 85% of all newborns examined within the first week of life, uh, let's say. And so then they will have that measure that they will keep track of in order to maintain quality uh, within their within their population of patients. And so they'll keep track of that. And then the way their payments will work for the, for the physicians will be, well, you're paid X if you just, you know, for all, for caring for any of our patients, but we'll give you X plus 10% if you follow and su successfully achieve some threshold, some measure uh, whatever the measure might be. Yes. That, and, that's one example. Yeah. Right. And, and so those are measures that are by all means, well, they make sense, right? There, you should see, you know, newborns within week or whatever, mm -hmm. or you should control diabetes or hypertension or make sure <laughs> yes, that we should. <laughs> right. I mean, all these things, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the, the point I guess is that, I mean, I guess the cynic would say, well, they're doing this because they can ho hopefully pay a few people less because they're not following <laughs> achieving these measures uh, mm -hmm. because they're really not paying you more. They're just paying you, you know, if, if before you made X, now you're making X minus 10%. But if you keep meet all the measures, now you're back up to X is sort of yeah. how it generally works with the third party payers. Yeah. Uh, and it depends, uh, depends which way you're looking at it. But I think when you, you, you know, you really look at that, um, you know, you can look at it as a carrot or a stick. And that, that's kind of the analogy that, that I used in my, yeah. in my essay. Um, but, but there's a few problems with it. Um, so I think most of the, um, most of the measurements up to now, um, historically at least have been, uh, measures of process. And, and you mentioned quite a few measures of process there, meaning, you know, all women get their mammogram when they should, right. um, you know, uh, they get this test screening test when they should. And, you know, each of those things, um, it, it could be logical, but there's lots of factors that may go into a patient getting that done or not. Um, so I would say that most, you know, physicians who graduate medical school and complete residency, uh, you know, pass multiple steps of boards, kind of, you know, know what the standards of care are, care are uh, for that particular topic. But accomplishing that is, uh, you know, very, very complex, and there's many factors that go into it. Um, you know, anyone who's worked at various different clinics and worked with different patient populations will tell you that, you know, if I go to like a nicer part of town, um, you know, it seems like every woman goes and gets their mammograms when they should. And I go to, right. a, a, you know, a, a less educated part of town and it's a struggle. Um, and, you know, so, so there, there's this kind of uh, baked in uh, biases that we have amongst our, um, you know, our patients. And that happens at the individual level. Um, that happens at the population level. And so um, I, I think the, the real first challenge in doing all of this is, you know, objectively measuring the quality of that on a, on a massive scale from afar is just, it's really, really hard. Um, you know, we can take an individual patient, you know, we can take Dr. Smith and, you know, Sam and say that Dr. Smith didn't treat Sam the right way or recommend the right thing in that context. 
But that's a wholly different matter than looking at thousands of decisions um, that a doctor may make within a group of patients and trying to um, try to evaluate whether those were good decisions or not. Because, um, you know, as we all know, sometimes doctors do the right thing and the outcomes aren't good. Uh, sometimes there's barriers in front of the patient that, that doesn't allow them to get something done that they should. And that doesn't inherently mean always that the doctor is, uh, you know, a terrible doctor. It's a uh, something that that states that the doctor is doing a bad job. So um, it's just really, really complex, even in individual cases. You know, I'll, I'll be talking to medical students about a patient who may not have controlled diabetes. And, you know, perhaps it's just me making uh, uh, excuses for myself of why Joe's diabetes isn't really well controlled. But sometimes there's complicating factors um, in that. And sometimes Joe really struggles with some other things. And it doesn't mean we should give up on Joe, but it just means, you know, this patient is a really hard patient. It's, it's, it's a struggle to get them to do the right thing. Um, and I don't think that always reflects poorly on the medical care they received um, and vice versa. Uh, I have patients who seemingly do everything right. And I spend two seconds with them and it's just because they would have done something right. And um, at the end of the day, doctors make it make a difference in some of those things, but you know, we're not the end all be all of, of health for sure. Well, it's sort of like the analogy that that you have control over how your kids turn out, sort of, right? I mean, when you look at the amount yeah. of time that as a parent, especially once the children go to school, the amount of time you have where you're interacting with your kids, you know, is very limited. And so you absolutely can help guide them, but they are making decisions on their own based on whatever situation they're in or their, their other acquaintances or friends, you know I mean? So just like the person who you may tell them all the right things to do, they may not do any of them and still continue smoking and eating poorly and not exercising. Likewise, and then to the other point is you may make all the right decisions and still something happens that you have no control over, right? I mean, you can just get cancer or yeah. something else. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so that's where there's like in the policy world, there's a little bit of debate. And I think the shift has been, okay, well, maybe measures of process are always the best thing. So right. let's go to outcomes. You know, the new mantra is, well, let's not focus on, you know, how we get there. Let's focus on the big picture, the outcomes. And again, as you say, um, that has some some terribly uh, complex factors that go into it. Um, but I, I think one of the things I, I, I really focus on kind of all the examples of how wrong we've gotten it um, in trying to do this. So there was a study in JAMA, I think, uh, last year, year before, that looked at 86 uh, performance measures that Medicare had implemented. Um, and even in retrospect, you know, these were the you know the smartest people who we could come up with um, to say, here's the, here's the things that have performance or quality that we really need to focus on and measure and, and report. And, and of, the, of those 86 measures, only about 37% of them were proven any validity in a clinical sense. Um, right. So, you know, two thirds of them were not even proven, you know, one third of them were, were probably just total junk and the other third were like, eh, who knows? Um, but we spent years and years collecting these measurements to tell physicians whether they were doing a good job or a bad job. And only one third of them were even valid. Uh, I mean, that's just a staggering amount of work. Uh, and boxes check that physicians did that people were like, oh, well, we got it wrong. You know, we did that to, <laughs> to, to a million physicians and said, oh, well, maybe we'll do better next time. And so a lot of this cynicism comes from the, the fact that they have just gotten it wrong so many times. Um, but, but I think even when you get down into the, the psychological um, aspect of this, it's funny. Um, I, I, wrote a, I read a book several years ago um, called uh, Drive by Daniel Pink, um, was a really interesting guy, uh, was a speechwriter for Al Gore and, and Kind of got into more the social sciences of business um and uh reading this uh book was very enlightening because he talks a lot about what motivates uh people um in professional business senses uh and, and, and business um perspectives and 
And I, I never, uh, you know, I have a, uh, almost a minors in psychology from undergrad, but I really never read this research of, of what like really drives people to do better. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think in the American system, we often think that, you know, bonuses and, and, you know, carrots to make salespeople do better. And, and uh, anyone who has any professional job, if we incentivize them, we do this with teachers, sadly, if, if uh, you know, if we right. give teachers a bonus because they, they, their kids do better on the test, they'll try harder and do better. Uh, which we know obviously how, how well that's working out in education. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but really if you step back and look at the fundamental uh, um, social sciences on this, it's, it's pretty staggering that there actually has been a lot of research in this field in a, you know, controlled environments where they do these experiments. And um, you would think that incentivizing humans to do better with money would always be good, right? You know, if you take a hundred people uh, and, and you take another group of hundred people and you give one of them a bonus that everyone who's getting the bonus would always do better because they'd try harder and they would think harder. And, and, and what the, the evidence of this is overwhelming that in, in certain settings. So if you're building widgets, a very menial uh, kind of simple task, you know, if you're counting candies or, or, or counting, you know, building widgets that yeah, um, financial incentives on a, on a personal scale can matter. Um, but what's really fascinating is when you get into more cognitive professions, problem solving, even basic problem solving, uh, with intelligent people, um, the, the studies show that it doesn't work. Um, and so this is even, you know, just very basic problem solving. And, and I would suggest that, you know, medicine is a, a lot of problem yeah, solving right. and very, very cognitive. Um, you know, although there's standards of care, there's a lot of judgments and, and application of, of, of things. Um, so even if you just step down and look at the basic premise of, of what motivates a, a professional to do better, um, even on its face, um, these kind of like carrot and stick approach in, in a business world are just mostly nonsensical yet it's it's driving this entire you know generation of health policy to make doctors do better when even the the fundamental premise is flawed it's interesting because in our business uh, just our our anesthesia practice it's the same thing right as you start offering professionals more money i mean absolutely people are motivated by money but at a certain point it is it's the all the other things that that they care more about uh because when you get to a certain point you want to have the job satisfaction. You want to have the ability to make a difference for people's lives. I mean, that's why most of us went into this profession is not is not just to make piles of money. It's actually to treat people and to have that personal you know relationship with patients. And so, anything you can do to enhance that is generally going to be a, a winner for your business. And yeah. throwing a bunch of money to have people who are not happy doing what they're doing or not stimulating is not going to be very effective. So I guess you know if you're a policymaker in Washington. I mean, I think in one way the, we can recognize we're kind of talking around the issue, but before we get to the big, broad issue, we'll kind of sit in the weeds for just a minute longer. Uh, if you're a policymaker in the state capitol or in the federal you know, capital in D.C., you're trying to measure things that are in some ways hard to measure, uh, and they require a tremendous amount of effort to measure, and then you're also tasked with measuring things that may or may not be important. <laughs> and so, yeah, right. That's the, that's one major problem. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there is an incentive for people who are not the clinicians to want to measure. I mean, it, it creates <laughs> right. a whole industry and a whole job. Um, so if, if we just step back and say, you know what, most of this is a total, uh, a total waste of time. I mean, what would those people do? I mean, bean counters count beans. Um, and it, and it's not that it's not that sometimes the, the, there's not some rationale to that. Um, but I think it's really hard when when the financial construct of medicine is that everyone but the patient and the doctor controls the money. Um, you know, you can call this the measurement industrial complex. I've I've heard someone call it. Uh, I won't I won't steal that phrase, but I love it. Um, 
and, and so, yeah, I think there's this whole kind of industry around this and, you know, people can't give it up. Um, but it, and what's really interesting is, you know, I think there's kind of just some misperception or misapplication because there, there's other industries that aren't so, uh, um, you know, aren't, aren't so controlled as, as healthcare. But even even people in the corporate world sometimes do these silly things to try oh, to yeah. apply external pressure. Um, so it's not totally unique to healthcare. But I think what's really hard is, and you, you mentioned this briefly, that there's these other intrinsic factors that matter a whole lot. Um, and I, I think, you know, medicine is a, a you know, a relatively altruistic profession. I, I, I don't like saying doctors are somehow above anything uh, any more than any other uh, professional is. But um, um, I think what matters a lot is that culture and environment. Um, and I think Daniel, Daniel Pink uh, says that, you know, an, an environment that fosters a sense of autonomy, mastery and purpose is really what allows us to maximize our potential. Um, and so those things are kind of hard to count, you know, those the bean counters don't know how to count autonomy, mastery and purpose. Right. Um, but, but it's that kind of culture um, that where people can excel. Um, I mean, you can hit them over the head, you can give them candies, um, but if they, they're not in an environment where they can kind of have the opportunities to do what really matters to do a good job, I mean, it just won't matter. I mean, it, it's like putting lead boots on a horse and whipping them harder. Um, and it's, it's funny, um, you know, I think, I think some of this might come from the upside down um, nature of our healthcare system, which way uh, overvalues, or I don't want to say overvalues, but way more values um, procedure-based care than it does cognitive-based care. Yeah. I mean, if you line up the uh, highest paid specialties, it's just a straight, you know, if you do the most procedures, <laughs> yeah. you get paid more. The less you do, the less you get paid. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're a specialty or not. So I even hate saying that this is a primary care versus specialty thing because ask a pediatric endocrinologist how, how well they're doing financially. <laughs> they, they don't do good. Or infectious disease. Uh, they don't do it because they don't stab, stab people with needles. Um, and so um, if you really look at this, I, I think that you know, the more cognitive the profession or the skill, uh, the less this all makes sense. But because our system is so dominated by procedure-oriented things, um, you know, I, I love uh, Atul Gawande. I think he's he's a brilliant guy. But you know, he wrote that the checklist manifesto, and a lot of that makes sense in certain areas. You know, maybe in the OR, mm -hmm. uh, checklists make a lot of sense. But I wish all my patients could fall into these easy checklists. You know, they come in with fourteen different problems and psychosocial problems. Um, and, and things that are confounding each other. So I think a lot of it is our, our system is so dominated by kind of specialty procedure oriented thinking. Um, whereas, you know, something like primary care or more cognitive based uh, things are, are, are just a lot more complex than that. Yeah. And if you look at, um, if you look at it from the payer standpoint and the payers here are the insurance companies, it's much easier to get a, get a handle on um, a procedure simply because they're all the same, right? Like I go in and I have my gallbladder removed every time. And so I can, I can figure, I can determine the amount of times that happens. I can determine who happens to, but for someone to just go in with shortness of breath, it's really hard for me to, to try and figure out what the value of that visit. Maybe you just you had a cough or just a cold. Maybe you had it yeah. asthmatic, right? Status asthmaticus. Yeah. It's hard. The differential to know is huge. <laughs> right. And, and the cognitive, uh, the necessity of the cognitive abilities to, to solve that vary from case to case. I mean, sometimes it's real simple and sometimes it's, you know, harder and, and they try and have different levels. If you're not in medicine, there are different levels of care you provide levels one, two, three, four, and five, I believe. And, and even there, it's, there's not a, there's not a recognition of how difficult it was or uh, what was done yeah. except for, well, you, you perform this many components, you spent this much time or, you know, maybe you're slow or we, you figured out if they wore seatbelts. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with, to do with whether they 
you know, why they're having shortness of breath, but having that sort of component in your history, your note, yeah, suddenly yeah. raises the level yeah. of, of payment. And so incentivizes people to do kind of weird things. And yes. more t- and, and a bigger problem, of course, is that it incentivizes people to design systems to record such activities. And that's why you have physicians who have this problem with their electronic health records that are no longer used for keeping track of records of things. Because you know before, oh, yeah, not even close. Yeah, right before your close. paper notes were like, you know, Mrs. Smith came in, we did this and that and the other thing, and this is her blood pressure, and I expect to see her in two weeks because I think she has whatever. And now it's you you compile ten times as much data because you're asked to yeah. keep track of these metrics and things like that, and it it become you become a data entry specialist and and you lose sight of actually the purpose of it. And yeah. and anyway, and I think. Yeah, Go I 100% agree. Um, there was a, there was a really great article. Uh, um, I hate to give Atul Gwanda so many shout outs here, but um, he, he wrote a really great article um, where he, he kind of had his, his realization of it. It was actually quite a fantastic article called The Hero, Heroism of Incremental Care. Um, and I, I think he, he actually kind of had a little bit of a mea culpa at the beginning of this article um, where he says, you know, I, I don't think I quite understood the difficulty of primary care and, and how sometimes the goal in primary care is just to move a person towards a better place and it's it's hard to define what that is right you know so i yeah. have someone who comes in and they're a horribly uncontrolled diabetic they've been wet way most of their life they're a smoker you know they're set up for a disaster i mean they're, they're a ticking time bomb and, and you know they need my care um i can help them in some respects now can i get them to be super healthy like they didn't do all those things for the last 30 years no um but i i can move them in that direction and, and maybe i don't move them to the place of healthy um but I can move them in a direction that's better for them and, and maximizes their life. Um, but that's that's kind of a moving target, you know. That kind of incremental care, particularly in people who have chronic diseases, um, you know, even something that seems simple like diabetes is very very complex on what our our goals are. And then also we have to factor in, you know, what are our patients' goals? I, I think doctors often, yeah. um, you know, of course, you know, if someone has a, an appendix, you get the damn appendix out. I mean, it's pretty easy. That goal mm-hmm. is generally pretty easy. Um, Whereas people with chronic diseases, you know, I, I often talk to them about what their goals are. Um, and I think because, you know, we're kind of chasing these quality metrics that sometimes we lose track of, of the patient and their own autonomy. You know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, uh, I can tell the person the exact right thing to do. You know, you take this medicine, you take this, you know, take your blood pressure at this time, you stop eating Twinkies, you stop smoking, <laughs> you drink less. But if they don't do it, then they're not better off for it. Um, and so I think that there's, you know, there's the autonomy of the physician um, which I'm always cognizant of, but what's probably more important is that you know a patient has their own autonomy. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I always joke that um, I'd rather be, uh, and I don't joke this because this is true. I, I'd rather be an average physician with adequate time than the smartest doctor in the world who's rushed. Um, and I, I think that every day to myself that I'm, you know, I, I feel inadequate and I feel like I'm just not smart enough and I have to read up to date like constantly because you know I haven't seen that type of thing before. Um, and I always have to ask my specialist colleagues these annoying questions. But um, <laughs> the reason that I can do better uh, is because I have the time to do it. And, you know, even if I was like in the top one percentile of my family med boards, um, I probably wouldn't do as good a job if I was rushed. Um, and and you, could, you could probably apply that concept to surgery as well. You know, you can't tell someone who's a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, hey, you know, I normally I know it normally takes you eight hours to do uh, a heart transplant. Uh, but we need you to do it for today. So just make sure you do just as good a job as you would have otherwise. I mean, that's really what we're asking primary care doctors to do when we ask them to do, you know, 12 minute visits. I mean, it's just, it's sometimes impossible. 
Well, and that's and actually surprisingly, that is what they tell surgeons all the time. <laughs> and yeah. anesthesia, it, you know, you got you're moving too slow. You got to turn over faster, and it it's what causes dissatisfaction within the specialists. Um, it it's interesting. I you, I've talked to Doctor Michelle Cotta. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a, a book about population uh, health, and how he thinks it's not real in many ways. Right? I mean that when these large organizations try and keep track of keep track of health. They're looking at large populations, but fundamentally what we're taking as a physician, we're taking care of one person at a time, and and the goals of one patient is entirely different than another. I mean, another one might not care that they can ever run again, so they don't, but they might want to make sure they can, uh, you know, walk down the aisle once with their daughter before they die or something. I mean, those are those are tough discussions, yeah. and those are ones that if primary care, you're, you're best equipped to have those conversations with patients, and you because you know them. I mean, for most part, assuming you've had a relationship with them. And that you can't, I don't know what metric you could possibly use to provide the satisfactory care and the care that that patient wants and needs. Yeah. And oftentimes it's even more complex than that. You know, um, I obviously, when I sit down with a patient, I I try to make my recommendations based upon, um, you know, the best science and and evidence I have for this situation, uh, you know, where possible. Um, Sometimes that totally corresponds with a a patient's goals and agenda. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, Um, the primary care we often have to tell people stuff they don't want to hear or stuff that they don't want to do um, or that they don't need that medicine. You know, I mean, if we look at the epidemic of overtreatment and over over testing, um, I, I would argue that doctors are kind of um, really bad at saying no, <laughs> um, yeah, even when they right. deep down know that no is the right thing to say. Um, so, yeah. How, how do you measure the absence of a Z-pack? You know, um, <laughs> or how do you measure the absence of not doing a CAT scan just because, you know, uh, the mom was nervous um, when you know they, they didn't need the CAT scan. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's a lot of things like that, that it's, it's just really hard to step back and look. Um, and I think you can look, you know, I have a degree in public health. Um, I think you can look at like large groups of people and, and on groups of people, you can make uh, certain, certain judgments and, and determinations. Um, and maybe you can find things within that population that, that you could do that would improve them as a group. But yes, at the end of the day, like I have Steve or Sue sitting in front of me. And I have to work with what Steve, Steve and Sue are. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I'm not opposed to like looking at a broader picture of, of a population, but um, you know, my, my first oath is, is to the individual sitting in the room with me for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. If you look at any other profession, I mean, if, let's just say you're looking at a painting, you want your house painted, you're going to go to a number of people and you're going to get various quotes for a painting. You're going to talk to some people to, who've seen their work, but if you wanted to try and have some national organization that, or even a state organization that can determine the quality of painters and how well they, you know, don't accidentally paint the trim or they, they don't scrape the paint off well enough or their paint lasts long. I mean, it'd be almost impossible to try and to do that. Yet we have a far more complex system in the medicine that we try and do the same. We try and do those, those same things. And it, it, when you think about it, it, it really seems absurd. Uh, I mean, I, I understand, yeah. I, you understand why people want to know because there's a ton of money being spent by the government or by insurance companies to get care that works and that, you know, and so they want to make sure the money's spent wisely and it, but it's just too hard for them when they're at a distance to have any idea of the actual care. Yeah. And, and, and then, yeah, I mean, you can look at other professions um, uh, and, and it's not that other professions aren't immune to this, but I think medicine um, it's, it's probably gotten the brunt of it. Uh, why, why don't we have, you know, quality metrics for attorneys? You know, how, how do I know that an attorney is advising people of the right thing to do without them turning some paperwork over to somebody? I mean, 
Well, the reason we don't is because attorneys control Congress. But um, <laughs> they uh, write the laws. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they write the laws, so that's why we don't have that. But I mean, there's lots of uh, professions where um, you know there there is a professional, um, and what I'm saying here sometimes gets misconstrued. Um, I should have started off the beginning of this with saying I unequivocally am not against uh, poor quality of care. Um, like that's not what I'm advocating for is for doctors to do bad. Um, right. Because sometimes that's immediately people's responses. But um, you know, we we jump through lots of hoops as physicians and, and other professionals do as well um, to to gain the uh, privilege uh, or licensure to practice medicine. Um, and so um, you know, we do have lots of hoops we jump through. And the, the funny part is, I think people forget that they're like, well. Well, people are just going to go out there and do whatever they want. And, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. Um, but um, we don't we don't say that about like, you know, an architect. Right. I mean, an architect had to go through school, had to get a graduate degree. Most states have to have a licensure. We say, OK, this person is a competent architect. Let them be an architect, because frankly, no one else knows how to do that job. Like we'd have to hire an entire team of architects to look at every architect's work every single time they did something. Right. Um, and that would just be, again, like you said, it'd be absurd to do that. Um, but in medicine, it's almost like people forgot that the professionals who are the, you know, the most knowledgeable about this topic are the ones who, you know, have the skills and ability to do it. Um, and so it's, you know, it's just, it's very strange if you, you're right. If you thought about any other profession, um, we just don't think about it like that, except for maybe teachers. I think, I think there are so many corollaries between the healthcare system and the educational system and teachers and doctors. Um, and it's, it's probably no coincidence that both of those um, are the most expensive broken systems in America. Well, and it, and, and I think the other corollary you could draw between the two is they're both not paid for by the people who are getting the, uh, the services, yep. right? Yep. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And so then you yep. have an intermediary trying to solve those problems or uh, make sure that you're getting what you value uh, and then, you, but it trying to define it at the same time. And so, and with then, you know, with political reasons, there are people who are defining what quality is based on their specialty and who gets paid for what. And suddenly you have a system that doesn't make much sense. And I, I mean, I think your, your, your analogy with education or the comparison with education is a very good one because it is very similar in that in some ways you don't have much control over, you know, the crazy kids that yeah. might be in your room. Right? And if you look at, you know, if you look at uh, um, the rates of frustration, quitting the um, quitting the profession, I mean, teachers are, are probably right there with doctors. And, uh, you know, I can't I can't blame them at all. Yeah. Well, right before we came on, I was rushing back because I'd forgotten about this interview. You're so kind to still finish it with me. But uh, it was because I was talking to some medical students who are, uh, I always hate to say bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, but they really are. I mean, they're they're still very <laughs> idealistic. They're very much... We can we can say whatever they want. They're medical students, right? Right. Is it that Ex- the code? <laughs> exactly. We can call them whatever we want. But I mean, it's very wonderful because you see yourself in medical students, right? You see that um, that idea of what you think healthcare should be, what you think, and I even probably don't even like using the word healthcare, but what medicine should be, what what you're supposed to do when you go out into the profession, why you became a doctor. And... Um, Cons- I started talking to them about direct primary care, which is a radically different way of pr- pr- providing care uh, than what we've sort of been discussing because, at least I, not that I'm aware, any direct primary care physicians really keep track of quality outside of did I do a good job, did my patient think I did a good job, and was the outcome good in that patient, but they're not generally tracking you know, other things. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. Um, I, the reason that I do direct primary care is is not to practice poor quality medicine, um, which I know people from the outside uh, sometimes think that. But um, you know, I, I think that we can do that in our own practices, and I think I think that self um, 
that self measurement is a lot different than an external measurement, right? Um, so I can give some examples of things that I've done, like on a practice level, you know, making sure that all of my patients were up to date on a vaccine or hepatitis C screening or something else. If we, you know, miss people who'd fall into the cracks and, you know, that's all internally generated and, and, and we kind of set our own agenda, which is generally in line with what I think most people would think the, the you know, sta uh, standards of practice are. Um, but I think what really DPC allows as a model is to really get at those intrinsic cultural things, um, those opportunities to develop those relationships and spend enough time with people. And, and as I mentioned, I think that stuff is just, you know, magnitudes more important than those kind of external pressures. Um, so for really that, that's what, what I think we need to do is allow primary care physicians and, and particularly, uh, you know, uh, specialties to have cognitive, we need to allow them to have that culture and those opportunities to do those things, which we know really matter, but are sometimes hard to measure. And frankly, they're undervalued. I mean, I don't think there's any question, like you said, yeah. it's easier for a procedurally standpoint because, um, for someone to go in and take an appendix out or, you know, for me doing anesthesia or something that it's, it's, uh, it's obviously a specialized skill but it's hard to to just grade how much you know what thinking is worth, <laughs> just straight, yeah. because it it's easy to see oh this person can't take an appendix out without you know killing someone or or whatever. Yeah, if you take the wrong leg off in surgery, it's right. pretty much bad. Like I mean, it's pretty easy to measure. <laughs> yeah, if you amputate I, the wrong limb, a absolutely right. I mean, those are those are clear problems, but it's hard to know like oh I just missed the diagnosis or I didn't really listen to the patient and I didn't really get their good feeling for what yeah. their symptoms were. I mean. Those are much harder things. Those are things the patient knows, and the patient will say, "Yeah, this guy is a quack," or "This person's great." Make you know, make, tell all their friends and their family to go to the, see mm -hmm. the, this physician. Yeah, that's sort of you know, or or other physicians say, "Oh, that's who I want to go see," or send their family to you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. If, if you ask a patient or a doctor like what really matters, uh, you'll rarely hear them give some random quality metric. Um, it's pretty simple right. things. You know, it's 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 an opportunity to sit and listen to each other, you know, to understand somebody's story, uh, which you, it's hard to do in 12 minutes. Um, it's an opportunity to educate patients and allow the patient to ask questions. Um, the opportunity, uh, you know, that leads to an opportunity to develop long-term trusting relationships, both with patient and doctor and the staff. Um, you know, we can, uh, you know, use those opportunities to collect relevant data and implement them in our practice. But, you know, it's not the main focus of just collecting more and more data for data's sake. Um, and then I think one of the harder things to learn is, uh, believe it or not, um, doctors aren't mostly fantastic when they graduate residency. Um, right. And if you don't <laughs> give all of the above, you don't have the opportunity to continue to learn and grow in your knowledge and skills. Um, and I think that's been so robbed of physicians. I think, um, you know, I, I felt uh, it, it confident in some ways that I graduated residency eight years ago, but I, I still have so much to learn. And if I'm just constantly like clicking boxes and I don't have the time to step back and, and think about that difficult case or do some research or do a curbside with a specialist, like how am I ever going to get better? And, and so like that, that's something that happens over years and decades, um, hopefully, if you're in the right environment to do that. And so, you know, we're just really robbing physicians of the opportunity because they're you know, just their, their noses are in the keyboards and they don't have that opportunity. And, and at the end of the day, you know, we have to have doctors who, who stay uh, happy and sane while doing all of this. Um, and right now you're seeing, you know, uh, I, I, I won't use the word, uh, but you're seeing, uh, you know, doctors really, really uh, frustrated and, and um, depressed. Um, I, I like the term moral injury. Um, there's a yeah. great article on this. Um, I, I won't use the B word because I think it's unfair to doctors to use that word. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think, if you don't have the opportunity to do all of those things and stay happy doing it, then 
uh, you know, no amount of no amount of characteristics are going to make any difference. Yeah, and it, you know, you look at 400 physician suicides a year, and that is sort of your answer right there. I mean, that's it's twice the general yeah. population. That shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, especially for a profession, yeah, that I, should be fun. Yeah, I mean, most most students who I think go into medicine um, go into it for the right reasons, and and they're hit with this kind of brick wall of reality that is all of this junk. Um, and you know, we're willing to make sacrifices. We're willing to work really hard, and and often give up our twenties and a lot of fun. But it's all in the promise and hope that it's going to be better on the other side. And mm-hmm. I I uh, I totally sympathize with with doctors who get to the other side of that and realize that it's not so wonderful and and despair. Yeah, you want to. You want to make a positive difference, whether it's a small little difference with a couple of people or, you know, something bigger. But I think that's especially that's the idealistic thing most people go into medical school dreaming of. Uh, you started a DPC. And for the, my listeners who are not familiar with direct primary care, shame on you. You go go back and listen to a number of episodes <laughs> I've done in this. You need to listen to much more of this podcast. You need I to... looked at the guest list and there was like many DPC pioneers and, and uh, champions on here. Yeah. I mean, there's some great interviews where we talk more about it. But Essentially, it's just, you know, membership, uh, just a membership. It's just a membership-based uh, process instead of using third-party payers. It's just a different way of providing care, and essentially, it's uh, it's a lot less expensive. But if you look at 2011, I don't. I mean, how many DPC guys were out there, and and how did you even find come up with the concept and how to do it? Yeah, um, honestly, in 2010, 2009 is kind of when I had determined shortly after graduating medical school and, and maybe even inklings in 2008 when I graduated medical school that I wanted to do something different. Um, all of this stuff that I'm lamenting here tonight um, as a stupid medical student, um, I was you know, sensing that, that doctors who I rotated with were uh, even way back then were, were very frustrated and, and um, you know, I, I just didn't see myself um, in any of those roles. You know, I, I rotated in all the normal traditional settings and just found all of them kind of were, were terrible in their own ways. Um, and so I started looking for, for something different, you know, because I had graduated medical school, uh, school with, uh, you know, uh, six figures in debt, and um, I had to get a real job someday. Um, <laughs> and so I looked around and, and found a handful of people around the country. I mean, literally a handful, less than five, yeah. doing something that was kind of like DPC. I think the only physician using the phrase direct primary care was Garrison Bliss in uh, Seattle, um, which had just recently formed Q-Alliance, um, which is sadly now defunct. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think Garrison, when I started in 2010, 2011, was the only person using the phrase. Um, and there were some other doctors who were fully direct models and, and probably calling it concierge or something different, you know, just cash right, fee-for-service. Right. Um, but I, I really think in 2011, as I started marketing my practice, I, I may have been like one of the first two or three doctors on the internet using the phrase um, way back then. So there, there really wasn't a, a blueprint and template at all. I mean, you know, so, some of those early pioneers um, chatted with each other occasion on occasion, but really, you know, none of us had been around long enough to really prove it. Um, yeah. So we were all just kind of making it up and forming these ideas on our own. And, and a lot of us arrived at the same conclusions, you know, um, but it was really each of them kind of happened to vacuums. Yeah, it's interesting because it's hard looking back at the times. I, I try and tell people even 2004 when I went to find my job here in Grand Rapids, there was I'm, there was an internet, but it was totally different than, I mean, our corp, we had no corporate site, really. You couldn't find practices to go find jobs in, if you, especially if you're out of state, to try and find, you know, where you had to look through um, trade journals or look for advertisement. It was really hard finding groups if you didn't have uh, prior knowledge. Now, of course, everyone's got web pages and, and there's information now and oh, DPC, yeah. I mean, there's books. Yeah. And I mean, it's crazy. Um, Facebook even, pages. Even, you know, 
I, we feel we sound super old saying all of this, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, even in 2011, I mean, we had Facebook and social media, but it wasn't barely. Like what it is today. Barely. Yeah, barely. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think the first uh, DPC doctor I talked to was actually Garrison. I, I read an article in medical economics or some type of practice management thing and thought like, oh, man, this is this is amazing. Like, this is the future. I think I called him and ended up, you know, connecting on the phone and talking with 10 or 20 minutes and was like, well, I'm two years from finishing residency. So I just wanted to say hi and you're awesome. Um, but yeah, it really wasn't, we didn't have this kind of mass uh, ability to connect with each other on social media. And I, I think, you know, that, that really has been pretty instrumental in the DPC movement. The fact that we've all been able to find each other and create these kind of underground networks and communities of sorts that build, um, build these relationships. And so although we're, spread out all over the country, I don't think people recognize like how tight of a uh, community this really is. And, and as it grows, it's become you know more difficult with a thousand plus doctors. And, yeah. you know, uh, I, can, I can remember helping organize the very first national DPC conference in 2014 in Kansas City. Um, and uh, there's a handful of us that organized that event. And we had no idea how many people were going to show up to that thing. Um, I mean, there was probably legitimately two or 300 practices open at that time. And there's a lot of people who are planning on opening it. And so, um, you know, uh, it was the first time I think there'd been like an advertised big effort to do a national conference. Um, and we just held our breath, you know, the planning committee, um, we were like, we're going to have like 25 people show up. It's going to be as many people <laughs> on the planning committee. And we had over 300. Um, yeah. and most of them were like curious and kind of in the planning stages. Um, and I would say like the majority of those people at that conference went on to open practices and now they're up on stage speaking and teaching other people how to do it. Yeah. So it's really been like a mentorship model over, and, and most people who like kind of discovered the DPC movement, they don't realize like how far this goes back. Um, Cause I, I can remember some of my good friends now who are now, you know, lecturing on DPC, studying the audience and just sitting there like, Oh my God, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And now they're up there teaching everyone else. So it's, yeah. it's been really awesome to see that. Well, it, you're sort of like uh, you have these little fledgling birds and you're sort of, you were the, they had no idea that you were really not knowing what you're doing either, but you, you pushed oh, them out yeah. of the nest I, and gave them some advice. I freely admitted it. I freely yeah. admitted this to them too. That's the crazy part. I'm like, hey guys, I'm crazy. Don't listen to anything I'm doing. <laughs> but here's what I did. And if you want to try it too, go ahead. <laughs> well, Which I can't say my spiel has changed that much in seven years. <laughs> well, and, and I don't know how much how you feel about things, but I mean, I I feel like we're on the cusp of this becoming sort of an exponential growth. I mean, I, I, when I talk to med students, when I talked about med students about DPC, eh, three, four years ago, let's say, I had three heads, right? When I'm talking about this now, they are, they've either heard about it or they've, or they're immediately interested in hearing more about it because they've seen the, the challenges that physicians have in the current practices. And they hear this, they think, well, that's kind of what I thought of when I was going to medicine. I mean, they're, you're not going to jump right in, but they certainly want to learn more information about it. And, and I've, the practice in our town here have doubled in the last year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just really feel like if you're a physician, this is the way if in primary care, this is the way you're going to want to practice now, whether you can make it work or, you know, that's an entirely different question, but yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's really, really hard work. Um, uh, we, uh, founded the, uh, direct primary care Alliance, um, last year and I'm, I'm the president of, the, of that organization. And, and part of the big reason was, although we had these great informal, you know, networks of doctors and, and, and uh, private groups of chatting, you know, we really wanted a, a place for physicians to come together and kind of have a formal uh, mentorship and, and education and, and advocate for these ideas more broadly. Um, and so that's been a huge challenge in starting the Alliance, but, you know, we're just now seeing that kind of come to fruition. And, and I think, you know, it was the right time. Um, if we would have tried to do that three or four years ago, there just wasn't enough of us. There wasn't yeah, enough. Sure 
you know, uh, doctors doing it. But now, um, you know, I, I think we're right at the cusp of that. And it's hard to predict, you know, people are always like, I mean, I remember two years ago, how many DPC practices are going to be next year, year right. after? And I'm like, yeah. you know, we've, we've steadily grown every year. There's been more new practices, but um, exponential growth is hard. You know, that's going from 10 a year to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't know the, uh, you know, the rates are going to go like that. Um, but I, I think, you know, the system is so broken that it's, it's hard to deny the practical nature of this solution. Um, I think yeah. I think most doctors are still like sitting on the sidelines thinking, well, surely someone's going to come along and fix all this for us because, you know, you know, because of their politics or because of, you know, they're just exhausted. Um, but I think more and more doctors reach that breaking point where you, you almost have to get miserable enough to where you're like, OK, I'm going to do something myself. Like I can either sit around and wait for another round of regulatory tweaking or politics to fix all this or we can do it our own selves and it doesn't take something huge you know um it can take uh, a doctor in a, in a community with a small practice you know I, I don't think most of us want to grow into you know the mcdonald's of dpc or or conquer the whole world we just want to help our friends and neighbors get good primary care um and and so if there's enough of us doing that um that's how we scale um there's a lot of people who are skeptical say oh well you know it's just you and your little patients and how does that scale um and one of my, my uh, you know, someone who's, who's a big believer in the DPC movement, Dave Chase, uh, his response to that is fantastic. He's like, well, how do you scale moms? Um, <laughs> you, you, you can't. Um, and, and that's not the point. Um, I think the point is to replicate this and, and help other doctors discover it and do it. And it might be only on their little patients and only in their little town. But if we multiply that by 50 or 100,000, I think that's how we, we grow this thing. Well, you know, I think with any... And we'll just call this a new product. If you look at any sort of product, oftentimes the demand is not there because no one knows it exists, right? I mean, I'm sure no one was walking no, no around. One demanded, no one demanded Netflix. Right. Like no, no one sat around and said, I want subscription streaming internet-based TV. Like Absolutely, no one right? I mean, I, I can't, <laughs> I can remember hearing people talking about texting. I'm like, why text? You just call someone. I mean, I don't understand what the... Yep. Right. And then you, you start you using use the technology like, oh, this is like way easier. Not have to bug someone. It's asynchronous. They can leave a message and they can get back to me whenever it's convenient for whatever, you know. And uh, now you can't imagine life without it. You can't. And I mean, I think the key really to this movement is once patients say once patients see the value in it and they and it's become common knowledge enough that everyone's like, oh. Why just why not just have someone who can get a hold of twenty four seven and can and knows me and I can get my medications from in most states you know things like that, I mean it's a totally different relationship, and it's what most patients think physicians right are supposed to be like I I think, so I think you know that's the next thing right I think you it's tough to get to build a supply to a certain point until you have enough demand but once that demand's there yeah for sure then the, then when the yeah. risk is gone for going saying oh I'm going to leave the large employed group or, or you know or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you say, yeah. well, I know I can get 600 patients or something. Then I think yeah. there's yeah, it's, 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 right now. I totally agree. It's, it's, it's somewhat of a leap of faith and most people it works out. Not all, you know, yeah. I mean, starting a business is really hard. Um, and so, yeah, this, the, the early adopters, the, the, you know, the, the, the people who first do this, you know, they're, they're, they're hoping and praying that there's enough patience, enough business to keep them afloat. Um, and most people are seeing pretty good success and growing steadily. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, if we did a if we did an episode on uh, if we started talking about the consumer perspective of healthcare, that would be like two hours unto itself. <laughs> um, the psychology behind that is is pretty complex, but I I do think um, you know just my sense of it from talking about these topics for for a good decade now. Um, I hear patients and and just you know friends, family, people who are not like us or most of your listeners 
um, say things about healthcare and finances that I never would have heard them say five years ago. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and, and, and there's great examples of people saying, you know what, insurance isn't worth it. I'm just going to, you know, even if they have insurance, they're just going to go do it. Um, and so I think there are more and more, uh, you know, individuals who are, who are thinking like that, but it's still, you know, it's still a minority of people. Most people are still kind of blind sheep taking whatever their employer provides them and just kind of going through the motions. But until we get more engaged and active, um, you know, people actually shopping for healthcare and looking what their options are and looking what they value and what fits well with them. Um, I think this whole movement is going to be stalled by that, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a chicken of the egg thing, you know? Um, yeah, right. yeah, and absolutely. I think there, there are times, uh, as you mentioned that businesses can spell out a vision. Um, I heard uh, Steve jobs, um, say one time that, uh, someone was asking about like, you know, do you guys cater to your customers? And he's like, no, we tell our customers what they want. Yeah, you know, they, right. they don't even know what they want and we have to show them something amazing and that makes them want it. Um, and so I think that's kind of still the stage we're at, but, um, you know, I, I have friends who open practices and grow extremely rapidly and are full within a year or two and others, others struggle. And, and there's lots of factors why that is, but, um, I, I hope that, you know, America more broadly is waking up to these kind of outside of the box ideas. Well, it's interesting. I, the last episode I talked to Dr. Jack Cochran, who was the uh, former CEO of the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group, so all the physicians in the country. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and I near the end of the interview, I mean, his his idea for how to solve healthcare and to to treat the, I mean, it, are sort of what you'd expect from someone who's been involved in large organizations, trying to find quality metrics, trying to figure it out. Good physicians, bad physicians, you know. And you know, his, a lot of times his points are people think they've got all the tough patients, and it turns out they don't really usually have the toughest patients. They're just slow or not very good, right? I mean, things you'd expect, right, with any sort of population of people that some are going to be good and some bad and in between. Uh, but I so question I, this every day, right? I, right, and and so then I mentioned the direct primary care, and I and he came back and said, "Well, sure, for someone like you with means." I said, "Well, it's interesting because I just so I just adopted this this practice with personally about two months ago." Uh, which has been quite eye-opening, and I won't go into details too much. But uh, it said the nice thing is it it only cost me fifty bucks a month to to have a, a primary care doc, and and half and over half of my doc's patients are actually immigrants who don't have any health care, and so they're getting for six hundred dollars a year, they're getting all the health care they need, and not all of it. I mean, obviously, if you need certain specialized care, yeah. but but you know they're getting they're getting people taking care of them, and he's like, well, that's unbelievable that's a, that's a great pilot program i hope that's the sort of thing that you know that doctors i mean hallelujah to her and hallelujah to to you for for doing that and and that yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing we need i thought well th- I, there's a guy who is hey. totally entrenched in the current system and he's been he's seen the other side and immediately he recognizes the value of it right i mean that's yeah that's pretty well, remarkable there's a lot I think. Of, yeah there's a lot of presumptions like i mean i talk to people uh, you know who are, who are similar to that um background and like, you know, they've heard something kind of on the periphery about DPC and they immediately had this gut reaction to it without ever stopping and thinking about it. You know, it was just a knee-jerk reaction. Um, it's funny, I was on a, a, a Z-Dog, uh, Zoop Dr. <laughs> yeah. Melania show a couple years ago. And uh, I, I think it was one of his first like long format guests. And um, the guest before me was Robbie Pearl, who was the CEO of Kaiser in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always told Zubin, you know, you need to set Robbie down and I, uh, and. And uh, I think he has his own podcast now, so I'll share this podcast with him, and maybe he'll uh, he'll have me on to <laughs> to let me chat with him. Yeah, well, I think we've come to the end of our time, Doctor Newhoff. I really appreciate yeah. the discussion. Uh, I don't. I had a good friend who's not in Kansas anymore, but it's kind of nice talking to someone from truly the as Midwest as you can get 
Lawrence, Kansas. Yes, this is this is a God's country you're, for sure. You're about. I know other people think. I know other people think they live in God's country, but I truly do. <laughs> well, I trained in Iowa. My wife's from <laughs> Iowa, and of course, you know, you sometimes mistake it for heaven if you've seen the movie uh, Field of Dreams. Oh uh, uh, yes, right, very good movie. But it, and actually, a funny anecdote: when we were interviewing for residencies, we were out east, and uh, my wife was with. There's another. Uh, uh, medical student there who's interviewing and choose from somewhere in the East coast, like New York or something like that. And they've been discussing most of the day and they, you know, she knew my wife's from Iowa and she was from New York. And this, this girl turned to my wife and said, well, I don't know what you guys do out on the West coast, but here in the East coast, my wife looks at her like, I'm from Iowa. I don't know which coast is closer for me, but I don't think I, <laughs> I couldn't be farther from the coast really. Uh, so yes. anyway, it's that's just the uh, the burden we we bear yeah. as midwesterners well you know i mean it we're all flyover country at the end of the day and that's what really unites us midwesterners right. is we're all we're all people don't understand the whole concept of time zones and you know they're just all confused about all of it right hey where can people find more about you and what you're up to uh like twitter uh, facebook etc yeah i'm probably most active on twitter uh my handle is at new care n-e-u care n-e-u-c-a-r-e mm-hmm. um my website, my personal practice website is newcare.net, N-A-U-Care.net. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm president of the DPC Alliance, and that um, website is dpcalliance.org. And and I think I've sent people there before. That's a good site to go to if you're looking for a direct primary care doctor who might be in your area, right? I think they're – Yeah, yeah we, have a, yeah, we do have a directory on there that's only for Alliance members. Um, the, the directory that probably has more listings, and there's kind of a – a mishmash of types of DPCs done on yeah, sure. another mapper um, called DPC Frontier, um, dpcfrontier.com slash mapper. Um, probably has a, a bigger list um, and kind of a, a different styles of DPC on there. But if you don't find one on our uh, Alliance mapper, that's probably the next best one to go to. Well, thanks so much. It was a, it was a yep. delight talking to you. And uh, best of luck to you in your practice and continue yes. growth. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Welcome, folks. This is Dr. Larson. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Ryan Newhoffel. Oh, I forgot to ask you if that's how you pronounce your name. I guess it was. It's it's close enough. Newhoffel? Newhoffel. Newhoffel. Yes. Most people say Kazuntide after I say it that oh. but <laughs> All right. <laughs>